Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Make sure you check out the website and join our mailing list. Oh man, today we're in for a real treat. Today I'm interviewing Michael Fishman. He's the co-founder of Pure Cycles, a bicycle brand now based in Burbank, California. Michael started Pure Cycles with his two childhood buddies while in college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They sell their bikes directly to consumers on their website, which is purecycles.com, as well as to over 500 independent bike dealers around the world. Michael and his partners were named to Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 list in 2014. Additionally, the company has a new exciting project that they're working on, an electric bike, which I'm eager to learn more about in this interview. Michael, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? Yeah, let's do it. Fantastic. All right, here we go. Michael, tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start Pure Cycles? Yeah, so we were seniors in college at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And when I say we, it was me and my two best friends that I've known since kindergarten, Jordan and Austin. And we all realized that we didn't want to have just a normal job. We didn't want to go to job fairs like all of our other buddies were doing. Um, We wanted to start our own business and do something even more specifically, something that we were passionate about. So we started to look on campus and started to think like, what could we sell to college students or what could we provide to college students? Um, And at the time we all had bikes um, and we had noticed that most bike, uh, most students just had bikes that were either used and were really old and not very nice looking and didn't perform very well. And there was a very few select group of uh, students who had uh, bikes that were about $700 or more that they bought from the local bike shop. So we just thought that there was such a big, like a missing link, like to be able to get more college students on bikes, we need, we needed to do two things. We needed to provide, provide a very affordable bike that was around $300 and then provide a bike that was very good looking. And we felt like if we could do those two things, two things that were missing, we could be really successful. So obviously, Michael, the bike industry is so competitive. Tell me more about what is so unique about Pure Cycles. You mentioned that there was a price point there that you sort of filled in. Is that sort of the heart of the uniqueness of your product? No, you know, I think I think the uniqueness of our company goes beyond just the product. Um, but for the product specifically, we're, we're always focused on bringing the most affordable bike to the end user. We see that there's a big problem in the industry with most companies focusing on creating the fastest, most aerodynamic, lightest bike, which is those bikes are only for a, a few select people percentages of the population sure those bikes are awesome and fun i like riding them but the mission of the company is to get more people on bikes so every time we create a new bike we're always thinking how can we make the best quality bike for the lowest price because you know if you look at the bike sales in the in the u.s 
you know, 16 million or so bikes are sold every year, only 2 million bikes are sold in independent bike shops, which are selling the high-end bikes. So you think like, you know, there's so many people buying these bikes at Walmarts and Big Fives and um, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, Sports Authority, RIP, <laughs> you know, Sports Chalet, th that it's just because of the price point. So we're, we're trying to make a really cool looking, affordable product. So besides being affordable, like the other thing is to make the bikes really nice looking and beautiful and offer a lot of different colors and varieties. A lot of bike companies just offer one or two colors. We try to offer five to six to 10 to 15 colors, depending on the model. So the customer really has the choice. And how many retailer doors do you serve now? Uh, we're in about 400 retailer doors in the U.S. Um, and about 100 uh, retailer doors in Europe. How did you set up that arrangement in Europe? Uh, we started our European business about three years ago. And so we have our own business in Europe, uh, Pure Fixed Cycles BV. It's, it's uh, incorporated in the Netherlands and we have a, our headquarters is in Rotterdam. Um, so I've been go I was going to um, to Eurobike, a big trade show in Germany, every single year since we started in 2011, just to learn more about the industry. Because Eurobike is really where a lot of new stuff gets comes out, a lot of new product, and there's always like the the biggest um, or the highest level employees from all different companies. So I, I went over there like every year, even with a booth, even though we couldn't sell to Europe, just to learn about it. And I ended up meeting. Um, this really great guy, um, his name is Eddie, and Eddie's worked for us now. He heads our European team. He's worked for us since the very beginning, started the company there and runs it. And he was just a young guy like us who, who owned his own distribution company in, in Latvia. And um, he just thought he was the perfect guy to kind of run the business over there. So it, the business is, is small over there, but it's, it's definitely growing and it's exciting. Very exciting. And it seems like you had a lot of ambition in there early on, which is terrific. How many products did you start out with and how many products do you have now? We started out with just one product. When we first, our first product was just the most simple single speed bike and it also only came in three, it only come in, came in one size, sorry, it only came in one size and it came in four different colors. And now we have, let's see, eight different bike models right now and those come some of those bikes come in 15 different colors and six different sizes. So like, you know, the skew range there is we're in like the 500s for bikes, but we also sell parts and accessories. So we're in the 2000s for totals, total number of SKUs products. A lot of entrepreneurial minded people are listening to this podcast and I often like to give them sort of a, an idea of what it was like starting out because oftentimes they're in those early phases. How many employees did you have starting out, maybe in that first six months or 12 months? And how many employees do you have now? We had no employees in the first six or 12 months. It was just me and the other co-founders. Sure. Uh, just bootstrapping. You know, we were answering customer service uh, emails, answering customer service calls, doing the sales, traveling door to door to, to go to bike shops, doing the fulfillments, the warehouse, everything. Load, unloading and unloading containers, um, all the good fun stuff. And then about a year into the business, we hired our first employee who was a warehouse manager. But he, he, was, he wasn't managing anyone. He was managing himself and just managing all the shipments. Uh, and then after that, we hired a customer service employee. Those are the first two employees. And how many units have you sold to date? Uh, to date, we've sold uh, over 100,000 bikes. That's tremendous. How did you choose the name Pure Fix originally, now Pure Cycles? 
we chose the name Pure Fix because growing up, one of my partners, Austin, he always used to say, that's pure. Instead of that's cool, that's nice, that's great, it was always that's pure. So when we were coming out with uh, the name, the word pure was always going to be in it. And we were trying to think of what else we can connect that with. Was it like pure bikes? You know, and because of the nature of our first product was a single speed fixed gear bike, pure fix. We just liked a lot because it fit the fit the model of what we were selling. You know, we were selling fixed gear bikes, but it also was like um, it just sounded good off the tongue. Pure fix. Yeah, it's a super cool name. Michael, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different or wrong from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Pure Cycle's uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback? Yeah, I think we definitely discovered a bunch of different um, a bunch of different things from when we first started. You know, like I mentioned, we only started with a single speed fixed gear bike, and you know, we we thought that there was a huge need for college to give college students a really cool, affordable looking bike. And as we as we um, were selling a lot of bikes and meeting a lot of new bike shops and um, and trying to sell more bikes to the college students, moms and dads and brothers and sisters and everyone else, we realized that we needed to expand the variety of our offering to offer bikes that were more comfortable, bikes that were about comfort over speed and some bikes that had gears and some bikes that could ride over 20 miles and still be comfortable, ride over 100 miles and still be comfortable and, or ride a bike that uh, that is electric. So I think you know that was the biggest thing for us is that we we came into this industry as such newbies not knowing you know really much about bikes um but more so just wanting to create a product that um that was fun for college students and that was healthy and you know from there we we our eyes were opened about what the product was missing so michael let's get personal on a few topics many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know before starting a business they're sort of unconsciously incompetent in certain areas, not as fully prepared as much as they thought they would be in starting a business. Before you started Pure Cycles, to what extent were your previous skills and talents and knowledge aligned with your task of launching a bicycle manufacturer and a brand? Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very aligned, how did your previous skills, talents fit with your new startup? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's hard to answer that. I think a lot of what made us successful is our team of of co-founders in the very beginning, all of us having different unique skills. But man, I I would say like low, maybe like a five out of 10, you know, and I say that to be real, but also to like encourage whoever's listening to to, just to be like, you don't need all the answers before you start. That's super important to to understand that, you know, we, we learned everything along the way. Um, and because we had this team where, you know, I was doing a lot of the, the financial stuff um, and accounting and kind of budgeting and Jordan was doing the, um, the website and the IT stuff and Austin was doing the manufacture, uh, the manufacturing process and we were all chipping in with sales. Um, we just learned as we as we grew and the most important thing of the whole process once we started the company was just being obsessed with it and working so hard and taking 
taking advantage of every opportunity that was given to us and just working literally every single second. And I think that's the most important thing. If you're open to learn and you're really passionate about the product that you're selling and you're passionate about talking to the customers, everything can be learned. So you've been in business for a number of years now. What's the number one lesson you've learned since starting Pure Cycles? Number one lesson I've learned is that anything's possible. I would say if you put your if you put your mind to an idea and you push and you grind and you work as hard as you can and like I said you focus on the customer and the customer experience and you, and making good fun product or service you can create anything you can create a brand and, and you can be successful at it you know I think a lot of people think that uh, like you're born an entrepreneur um, you know that starting a business isn't for me, but I, I just, just so disagree with that. So I think that's the number one thing that I learned is that if you're passionate about something, you can do it. And, and even more so for me, it's the only, it's the only way. So I learned about myself that this is, this is the only way that I want to operate my life is, uh, is running a business. Michael, many entrepreneurs, including very successful ones, have regrets. They have regrets in doing things incorrectly in their, along their entrepreneurial journey. And I think those regrets can reveal big lessons to aspiring entrepreneurs, those listeners here today. Now, you started Pure Cycles a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago. Since then, would you have approached the business differently if you could go back and do it over again? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I would in a, in a lot of different ways. You know, I think one thing that we would have done differently for sure is trying to hire a product manager quicker than we did. The nature of any startup is you have to bootstrap and have as low cost as possible. So we relied a lot of, on our initial manufacturers to help us be product managers and, and put together a product for us, which ended up being pretty decent product. And we sold just a ton of those units and they held up for a long time. People are still riding those bikes today. But I do wish that we um, had a, a more experienced product manager come in here earlier to tighten up the spec a little bit better um, and also come out with more models in addition to the single speed fixed gear bikes quicker. Hmm. You know, that's it's, it's it would, would have been tough for us to do that because we didn't ha always have the cash in the very beginning. We were just paying in for our, all of our inventory. That was all where our cash was going. Um, but that's one of the things that uh, that I definitely would have done differently because pr product it means everything. Michael, it seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. Starting a business is pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a bicycle company? Are you a creator at heart? You know, I think that at heart, everyone is a creator. I think that it comes with just ambition. I think every person has ambition and that um, you j it just needs that extra level of confidence and that extra push to kind of to realize that ambition and to take advantage of opportunities. So for me, I read a lot. I, uh, you know, I just want to maximize my potential at every single step, every single second minute of the day and to be able to work on my own ideas and to think of my, um, to actually make what my, my thoughts come to real life and, and running my own businesses, there's just no greater thing to me. So it's just a no brainer to, um, to do this. What sparked that entrepreneurial moxie that you had? Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial environment? Um, my dad has his own uh, CPA firm. 
his own accounting firm. And then my grandfather also had his own accounting firm and he had his own real estate company as well. And then my other grandfather had his own um, dry cleaning company. So I guess there is like a long line of uh, entrepreneurs and, and people who own their own businesses. So I think maybe, you know, that was ingrained in me. But I do think it's very important that, you know, every, that to realize that everyone has these feelings. Do you think it was your destiny to start Pure Cycles? I think it was my destiny? No, I don't think it was my destiny. I think it's my destiny to create and to make the world a better place and to do whatever I'm whatever job I'm doing or business I'm starting to use it, use that as a good platform to make the world a better place and make people happy and all that. But I don't think necessarily pure cycles was my destiny. I hope my destiny is, is way bigger than even what this company is ever going to become. It's an interesting thing to think about. I'm pretty young, you know, to think about my destiny, but it's interesting. What do you think your destiny will be? What will you be doing in 20 years? I hope I'll be, I'll be, hope I'll be making the world a better place, making people happy, making people's lives better, and um, creating products or services or, or, or something that is making the world better, leaving a mark, um, and adding, adding stuff to the world instead of taking. Did your success with Pure Cycles surprise you? Yes. Yeah, I think our, our success surprised all, all of us. Uh, when we first started out, we thought we were going to sell our first order of 165 bikes, and six months to a year and we ended up selling them in three weeks you know this the scale of, of sales that we've had is is definitely surprising and and awesome and exciting um and even more exciting that because we have a lot more potential and a lot more room to grow how did you sell 165 bikes in three weeks launching a website uh tacking social media before it was like like it is now, um, where everything was paid for. You know, back in the day, everything was free. You could really get a lot of uh, exposure. Um, and then just knocking on bike shop doors all in, up and down Southern California, seeing who wanted our product. It was really, really a good mixture of uh, hard work and, and most importantly, timing. At the time we came out with these single speed bikes, the market was really ripe and ready for them. Um, it, was, it was really a big trend. What have been your biggest joys along your entrepreneurial journey? I think the biggest joys have been the learning process and um, the education that have, that have come from running this business and the process of employing over 30 employees worldwide and um, creating a fun, enjoyable workplace where people come and they love coming to work here. That's That makes me really happy. And then also working with the community um, to make uh, our surroundings a better place. So we... Um, we donate a lot of time and money to advocacy organizations such as uh, the LACBC, uh, the, the Bicycle Coalition in Los Angeles, and then also to People for Bikes, which is a national advocacy organization which lobbies government and, uh, to make sure that there is uh, infrastructure, bicycle infrastructure across the country, uh, such as protected bike lanes and make sure that no laws come into place that limit bike riding. So being involved with them and being able to go to Washington and lobby myself and give money to them has been really, really cool. That is really neat. How about frustrations? What's been your biggest frustration? You know, my biggest frustrations have probably been the nature of our business with all the inventory that we have to carry. It's really cash intensive. So that's a very frustrating process of, of um, because we our bikes also have a really long lead time. Um, so basically when we order a bike, it could take up to anywhere from two months to six months to get it, depending on the model, what components it has. 
Um, so having to kind of guess and forecast what your sales are going to be and then you and then coupled with the fact that the business is so seasonal so that you only have really like March to, to um, September to really make all to really make most of your money. Um, all three of those factors really make the business difficult and could, can be frustrating at times. Sure, that's for sure. Very common in product based companies. Michael, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and what has triggered it and how have you dealt with it? Yeah, I think I, you know, I definitely, I definitely have self-doubt from time to time. You know, I try to always bring a very positive attitude to the office and with all my employees, but you know, at times when you're just alone as an entrepreneur early in the morning or at night when you're working, and you feel like you're you're working so hard, but you're you know you're answering maybe so many emails, and you can't just can't get everything done. But at the same time, the particular product you're working on just isn't selling through for whatever reason. You know, there's it's impossible not to feel some doubt creep in. You know, the reality is that you can't win every project, you can't win everything. So you know, it's important to always for me to always just you know tell myself um, it'll turn around, it'll, it'll come around, um, you know, keep at it and, um, yeah, just stay, just stay confident, but it's impossible not to have self self doubt. You know, if someone tells you that they, that they didn't, they'd be lying. Do you think starting your own business has changed you as a person? Yeah. Yeah. Starting my own business has definitely changed me as a person. In what um, way? Just knowing that any, having the confidence that anything that you want to do, you could do. Anything that you want to learn, you can learn. There's no, um, there are no barriers to entry. What have you learned most about yourself, Michael, in starting a business? Uh, I learned that I really like to learn. I really like to be well-informed. I like to really like to be organized. Um, I really enjoy helping people. I enjoy learning about whatever product I'm, that I'm selling or service that I'm selling. And I, I enjoy bike riding. You know, I was an occasional bike rider before, but now, you know, I love it. I love commuting by bike. I think it's like the greatest thing. And I encourage all you listeners to, to be biking more. That's for sure. Super fun. Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? I think my dad's probably been most influential to me, just seeing more than anything his work ethic and his ambition with his business to grow it. But at the same time, to also never bring his frustrations with his business home to us, to my mom or to my sisters. That was always super impressive. That's something that you never really realize or appreciate until you're out in the world and you are running a business yourself. Um, and then also just having time to spend time with all of us, even though running a business, you know, those are, I think I, I definitely look up to him the most. So Michael, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Michael, let's talk about raising capital. Did you originally raise capital for Pure Cycles? And if you did, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, when we were running the business for the first year, we were just reinvesting all the profits um, that we were making from the bikes back into inventory. And um, we had a group of investors approach us and... Um, uh, angel investors, five buddies who were in New York and say that they wanted to invest in our company. And we weren't necessarily looking out looking for money. We were just working really hard selling bikes and um, got to know them pretty well, had some dinners with them, some meetings, realized that we, if we took some money in, we could really 
buy more inventory and grow this thing much quicker. Um, so we decided to take their, uh, their initial um, investment and after that, um, we just got some lines of credits with some banks uh, that were also located in Southern California where we were. And, you know, ever, ever since then, we've just been increasing our lines of credit with banks. And, and then we also raised another round um, from a lot of the same guys from the initial angel um, round initially um, t- about two years ago. And Michael, do you have any advice on how to find the right capital partner? Yeah, I think my advice would be to really get to know them, um, go to dinner with them, you know, maybe go play golf with them, play sports with them, do do something um, like kind of out of the office with them, get them into like just a more natural habitat where you can really learn about the person and they're not kind of grilling you um, to see if they're going to be the right partner. It's really important to realize that this person, guy or girl, firm, whatever is um, is going to is going to most likely be able to dictate a lot about what's the strategy of the company or hopefully can really help your company. So you really want to make sure that you know them and and that you know that they're a good fit for your personality. And what sort of qualities would you be looking for? I'd be looking for someone who is passionate about whatever product you're selling. I think that that is a really good starting point and make sure that they're users of, you know, even better if they're users of that product or service because then you know that they're going to be like incentivized to want to keep on helping you. I would also look for other qualities to see like if they've made other investments in other companies and maybe talk to those other companies and see what they think of this person. I'd look for qualities of, to see if they're ambitious themselves, if they've started businesses before. I'd look to make sure that they were nice, good, polite people, people who didn't get aggravated too easily and people who really understood the vision of your company so that they weren't surprised in a year when you were doing something and they said, hey, this is not the way, you know, this is not what I invested in. You know, I could go on and on and on, but I think that those are the most important things. Sure. And did the capital raise go smoothly? And do you have any key pieces of advice to make it go smoothly? Yeah, I think ours went smoothly. I think the, the biggest key is to work with a really good lawyer um, and to have, have a very good understanding of the operating agreement um, so that there's no surprises on, you, on the entrepreneur's end. Um, and also so that when the investors talk to you about things, um, you can put it in the frame of the way your operating agreement is written so you can you can actually understand what they're saying and, and try to get the best situation for you. So did you guys self-finance that first batch of 165 bikes? We did. Yeah, we self-financed just from saving up from bar mitzvah money and from birthday money and all that all that good stuff. So how did the three of you guys all end up at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, you all grew up in originally in Los Angeles? Yeah, we all grew up, all of us grew up in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. And we all went to kindergarten together all the way up to high school. And Austin and I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Jordan went to um, Columbia in New York. And, you know, we always just kept in touch. And then, you know, that, uh, yeah. Let's talk about finding a manufacturer. How in the world did you go about finding a manufacturer for that first run of bikes? And are you still working with that group or are you working with others? Yeah, our first manufacturer we found on Alibaba and it was all just through AIM. Not it was an AIM, but like a sort of a chat module that lives in Alibaba. And we didn't video chat with them. We had no idea what they looked like, what their factory looked like. We had no idea 
what, you know, what their voice sounded like. And we never went out to China to go see them. We, we did everything just via chat. We told them the way we wanted our bike to look. We asked them what bike that they had already made, which bikes they already made. And then we kind of just adjusted from there and said, this is the way we want it to be. And, and, um, you know, produce those bikes. We definitely do not still work with that manufacturer. You know, in the, in the beginning of starting a company where you're making a product, you, um, you typically have to work with a lower end manufacturer because you're going to be making low quantities of whatever product you're making because you don't have a business yet. You don't have a market, you don't have customers, you have to create that. So going through that process of, you know, trying to make the best product you can from those lower end manufacturers is tough. Um, but because we were blessed with such good timing uh, with this product, you know, something that is, is a lot of luck, um, we were able to sell a product that maybe wasn't like the best product, but it would, but um, it was something that was unique that wasn't really around and it just hit a good price point that didn't exist. But since then, we've, we now work with some of the best bicycle manufacturers in the whole world um, because we have a high enough quantity and because we have a great product manager who has great relationships and because we've gone overseas to numerous trade shows every single year to make sure we show face and tell people to tell these manufacturers our mission and overall goal and how many bikes we're going to create and how many new models we're creating. So it's been a big uh, transition from where we started with the manufacturing till today. What is your number one tip for aspiring entrepreneurs in finding the right manufacturing partner? A lot of it are the same tips about finding an uh, investor. I mean, just um, making sure that you, you truly understand their capabilities. If we would have done it over again, I would have loved to be able to go to China and talk to them. We were right in the middle of school, um, so we couldn't just like leave to go oversee the first production. But I think that the biggest tip, I would say, is, is going and showing face if you're going to go do business in China because that, it, it goes a long way. And... Uh, and I, th- I think it'll re- it'll really help. It's always helped us every trip that we we go out there. Product always improves, terms always improve, um, relationships always improve. It's it always makes things better. Let's shift the topic and talk about selling the product to retailers. Early on in those early days, how did you learn to do that, and what were those first approaches to retail buyers like? Yeah, it was really easy for us to sell into retail dealers in Los Angeles because we had a product that no one else really did and the retailers um, were only focusing on like $600 and up for bikes and our bikes were 300 so we were allowing them to get newer, younger customers into their doors with our product. So people were just eating it up. But every time I tried to make a call to like a dealer in Denver or New York or anywhere outside of Los Angeles, everyone was like, who are you? And you're selling bikes that are for $300. They must be pieces, you know, they must be terrible. They must be terrible quality. So I needed to find a way to replicate the process of me or my partners bringing in the bikes in person. So we, as we started to read trade magazines in the industry and started to talk to dealers in Los Angeles, we realized um, that there were these independent sales reps, um, outside independent sales reps that existed and that we could tap into those sales reps and only pay them a commission of what they sold. So it's like a no-brainer to hire an outside independent sales rep as long as they're uh, kind of communicating your brand in a nice way and showing your products. You know, You only pay them if they make you money. So as soon as we started hiring these sales reps around the country and seeding them product um, for them to replicate the in-person bike experience, we were really able to take off with the dealers. And then just kind of the whole process of learning about what margins dealers require, what kind of shipping policies 
um, dealers require. If you order X amount of bikes, do you get free shipping? Um, what kind of terms dealers require? How much, you know, how much dating to give people? You sell them a bike now and they don't pay you for 30 days. Stuff like that was all just a learning process. How reliable are the independent bike retailers in their payment? <laughs> it depends on which bicycle dealer you're talking about. It depends on which uh, a quarter you're talking about if it's warm outside and they're selling bikes or if it's cold and they're hibernating and they don't have any money to pay you. You know, it's uh, overall, I found that most bicycle dealers are very good people. They're very honest, nice, um, hardworking people and they, and they pay eventually, uh, maybe not always on time. But eventually, but it's you know we, we we do a lot of research on the dealers before we we give dealers terms and not everyone gets them and it's just that's been a very interesting learning process as well. It sure has. I used to own a snowboard and ski clothing brand where I manufactured in China and delivered to ski and retail and outdoor shops across country and oftentimes I bet I wouldn't get paid on average for sixty plus days from those independent shops. What is the percentage of your retailers that pay within 30 days? <laughs> it's not high. It's not, is it? No. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's talk about pricing. So how did you go about setting the price for your product? And would you have done anything differently back in those early days on setting the price? Uh, we identified like $299. We needed to be under $300. And I think we identified that by asking our buddies at college what they would pay for a bike, by thinking about what we ourselves would pay for a bike, by looking at the market and seeing what was out there, and kind of just comparing our product to that product and seeing what we think we should be pricing it at. And we use a lot of those same strategies today when we're coming out with new products, is really just looking at kind of what our costs are, you know, what, and, and then you know, what's our desired margin, all in combination with what our competitors are doing and what our customers want to see and pay. Um, you know, there's no one answer to that. There's really so many factors to consider when setting the price. It's our goal to make sure that we're giving them the best price to the end consumer. I know there's a lot of tension in early companies, especially with a hard goods product, to make the margin that they need and yet come up with a retail price point that works for everybody. It's always a challenge. Definitely. Yeah, that was a challenge for us, but it, it wasn't as much as, it, as I thought it would be now looking back because we were running so lean. We barely had any, we had no employees. We weren't even paying ourselves as founders. We had like no, barely any rent, you know, or no rent actually for the beginning because um, Austin's dad was giving us free warehouse and office space. Um, so it, that kind of allows you to make a lower margin. When I was in the ski and snowboard outerwear business, we worked with independent sales reps across the country as well. But I'm surprised to hear that you were working with independent sales reps because I've talked to a lot of bike people in the past and typically, at least from what I aware, I'm aware of, the bike industry does not work with independent sales reps. So I think it's great that you were able to find that and leverage that to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're definitely a necessary piece of the puzzle. You know, it's just, it's difficult finding really good ones. Yeah, um, that's for sure. Isn't it? It's, it's constantly revolving door with them as well, which is a sad part of the process as well. But you know, we do the we do the best we can to find good good ones and ones that are hungry and that like our product, believe in it. Yeah, very typical to have that sort of turnover very often. Let's talk about creating awareness and demand, Michael. Most startups have very small marketing budgets, if any budget at all. How did you or how are you creating consumer awareness 
and demand for your products? You know, we do it by way of Google AdWords, retargeting, social media um, buys, AdWord buys, such like on Facebook and on Instagram. You know, we're really zeroing in on on uh, different target markets for different target markets for different bikes. You know, a lot of our bikes are for still marketed towards college students. A lot of them are still are now marketed towards kind of younger um, professionals living in urban cities. And different platforms kind of serve each of those better. You know, we also market by going to a lot of open streets events around Los Angeles and now even um, around the country. We're, we're sponsoring the Denver um, Fun Ride, formerly the Denver Cruiser Ride, which is a huge open streets ride that happens in the summer. We're big sponsors of Ciclavia, which is an open streets event in Los Angeles that happens every quarter. Um, we host these draft local meetups at our office once a quarter where we get um, four speakers from the Los Angeles community to come and do TED-style talks to teach people about the cool things they're doing in the industry, whether it's their entrepreneurs that are creating cool bicycle products or there are people in government who are fighting hard to make better bicycle policy and make biking safer. Um, and we have free food and beer, so that's a good way to kind of that we get out in the community and expand our brand. I think selling into bike shops really helps us expand our brand in all these different cities. We go to trade shows as well. Yeah, do you go to what is it, Interbike? Yep. Yeah, we go to Interbike in Las Vegas every year in September. Um, we go to Eurobike every year, which is in uh, in August um, in Germany in Friedrichshafen. Uh, we went to Sea Otter last month, which was a really cool, or two months ago now, I guess, uh, which is a really cool bicycle festival type of uh, like thing that started as a bike race and now has turned into this like huge yeah bike festival. And that was in Monterey. So we're we're, we're trying to do to, to kind of attend all those types of events and show that we're very friendly, open brand that you can trust. And, and uh, it's just really also fun to interact with the customers at all those events. I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs don't know that there's two ways to spend marketing dollars. One is on the consumer to raise awareness and demand from end user customers, but you also need to spend money on the retail buyer. Do you have a sense for what percentage of your marketing budget is assigned to each? Most of it is assigned to the end consumer, for sure. We definitely assign a good amount to the retail buyer by way of these industry trade shows like Eurobike and Interbike and Sea Otter as well. And then also from sending out you know, catalogs and mailers and all that stuff. But most of the most expensive um, part of our budget for advertising is, is um, the end consumer advertising. I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs really want to find a business partner that they can trust and rely on. And what is it like working with and being business partners with your buddies from kindergarten? Yeah, it's really cool. We have a really unique and lucky situation where not only do I really like Jordan and Austin just as people and friends, I also really respect them because they're both really smart and good at in their own different areas. So. I think we have a really good lucky situation, you know, to be able to really fully trust your business partner. I think it's unique and rare, and, and but it is a very important part of the uh, of the equation. Were you ever reluctant early on to work together as business partners? I don't think we really knew anything, you know, to be even nervous about it. Uh, we were just having fun selling bikes, and we were having success early on. It was it was never like, oh man, is this like soon? Is this not going to work or whatever? You know, we weren't uh, we weren't worrying about it. Who's the best salesperson in the group? Austin is the best salesperson in the group, I'd say for sure. What are his keys to success? 
he's really good at getting buddy buddy with people really quickly. And then he's kind of just got like a gift of gab. He can just talk and talk, have people listen. Likeable. Likeable, yeah. Finally, Michael, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing bits of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? Yeah, closing bits of advice, I'd say, is to ship it. If you have an idea, go for it. Ship your idea, ship your product, your service, start the business. Um, whatever you think that your business is going to be now, it's going to change. And you know that's the fun part. It'll evolve and you'll enjoy it. You know, Try it. Michael, you've been a terrific guest, offering great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and sharing your experiences with us today. Awesome. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.